You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, while uh, you folks at home are turning up John chapter 3, again, I want to say a sincere word of thanks to the praise team. For those of you at home, just to let you know who's here, obviously Lindsay's here. We've got Ian and Mark and Richard and Scott and Hilary and Alana and Angie and we've got Stephen and Fred helping us on the desk. So thanks to you all. We really appreciate that and for the efforts that all of those guys have made for us uh, uh, over these very challenging months in helping to produce our services. We really appreciate it. Today we're thinking about the first of the gifts that God gives, the first of the gifts that God gives. And we're doing so in those very familiar words of John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Because, you know, somehow he has got lost among the Bethlehem shepherds, pushed aside by the mysterious eastern wise men, and overshadowed by the angels, and he's been outshone by the star. You don't see him standing in any of the nativity scenes or printed on trendy wrapping paper, and he's rarely ever even mentioned in Christmas carols. He's absent from many of our cards, and to our shame, we've even allowed Santa to shove him right off our Christmas scenes. Has any figure in the Christmas story been more marginalized or even forgotten than God the Father? The one who quite literally gave us Christmas. It's probably the most neglected figure in all of our Christmas celebrations. And the longer you stop and reflect upon that oversight, the stranger it seems because the Bible emphasizes that God is the giver over and over again. For it was the Father who sent the Son into the world to make his worst enemies his most beloved children, and yet he's crowded out by other more earthly details, the kind of details that can be captured neatly in a cool, open-fired, sparkly tree Instagram post, but God the Father just isn't there. No one, however, no one in the Christmas story played a more significant role not Joseph or Mary or the prophets or the kings or the shepherds or the magi, than God the Father. Even Jesus himself could only be the Son that first Christmas because God has eternally been the Father. From the words of that most famous of verses in John chapter 3 and verse 16, we so quickly move from the Father to the Son, don't we? We've jumped to the cross But we can only have the cross and only have Christmas because God so loved the world that he gave. Let's take a few moments today to consider, first of all, that God is the giver. God is the giver. And specifically, God the Father is the giver. In John chapter 3, verse 16, we get a little insight into what we now call the Trinity. For where we see the God that we worship of the Bible, the God that of the Christian faith is one God in three persons. God gave his one and only Son. And earlier in John chapter 3, you'll have heard it when I read it earlier, the fact that he not only gives us his Son, but he sends his Spirit. And if it is his Son that he sends, well, it's only logical that he must be the Father. If you want another helpful description of how this looks, I suggest you turn back probably one page in your Bibles to John chapter 1. And John chapter 1 verse 1 reminds us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That can be quite confusing when you read it at first, 
But whenever you read that the word is in capital letters, that means it's a person for anyone who's done P5 English at school. Capital letters for the word. Well, he's been with God since the beginning, as in fact he is God. And how do we know that the word equates with Jesus? Well, go down 13 verses to John chapter 1 verse 14, and we're told the word became flesh. That means God became flesh. And man is dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word, capital W, who was with God, is God. And he's a gift from the Father. He came to us in human form. God the Father is the giver. God the Father sends his Son. And Marshall Segal, a Christian blogger, wrote recently, if we sometimes forget the Father during Christmas, the Son doesn't. Nowhere is this more evident than in Jesus' prayer in the night he actually was betrayed. John's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 1 to 3, where Jesus himself prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Even on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was still saying to the disciples, I have someone who sent me. And it's God. Why mention that the Father sent him? Why does it matter? In order to emphasize all the more clearly that he truly is the Son of God, who came from the Father, and what was Jesus' purpose in coming to this world? Ultimately, it wasn't just to save us, it was to bring glory to the Father. Isn't that what we were created to be in the beginning? We were placed in this earth and were described as sons and daughters of God in Genesis to bring glory to the one who made us. But we failed. So he sends one who succeeds. All of us were made by this God and our lives were meant to bring glory to the same God. And the way we were created, it is first and our highest duty to bring glory to God and give him thanks. But in this, all of us have spectacularly failed, making much of the things that don't last. And as a result, we are all under God's righteous displeasure. We're all under God's just judgment for swapping God for lesser things. Just like we do every Christmas. You do it and I do it. We're more worried about our Christmas deliveries than the fact that God delivered up his son. We're more worked out about our stuffing and baubles, and this year we can even include bubbles and isolation than God piercing this world to tackle the virus that the Bible calls sin. This is what John 3.16 tells us and why it's so precious to us. For it describes the way that God acts in order to release us from this condition. God the Father gets such a hard time, even amongst Christians. I hear it all the time. People in their minds, Christians in their minds, almost have it. Well, Jesus is the good guy in the Trinity. He came to save. And the Holy Spirit, well, he's kind of mysterious and cool. But God the Father, well, he's the real judgmental one. He's the harsh and unforgiving one that Jesus almost kind of protects us from. But Jesus wants the world to know that his Father is the giver of every good gift. He's the prime mover in salvation. Our God, the Father, is this world's ultimate lover. Here's the second thing I'm going to ask. Why does God give? Why does God give? 
Well, listen to that verse again. We know it so well. For God so loved the world. Did ever a two-letter word make such a big difference? God so loved. He didn't just love the world. He so loved the world. The love spoken about here is God's almighty pity, God's almighty compassion with which he regards the whole human race. That is the way John is using the word world here. World in the sense of you and me, everyone within the human race who's fallen, the countless millions of perishing people across the globe today to receive news of the gift of his son that comes in love from the Father. Let me root it as best I can. You know, God loves the world. He, he, he loves that guy in your Spanish class, the girl in your hockey team, the neighboring farmer across the field, the son or daughter, the mum or dad, the brother or sister or aunt. It, it's one of those despised, dung-collecting, disregarded, dirty Akdam in the Yemen. God so loves those people. Are, are those soldiers causing hassle, hassle for the Chin people around Lalempi village in Burma today that Dr. Saki and Dr. Sasa often write about? It's the businessman in his smart suit on his way to work in his murk, and the teenager who this morning wakes up on a cold floor, having shot up last night and been addicted to drugs for years. God so loves this world. And you know, it's good news for the busy, overworked, and stressed out mum. For the girl who's working long hours wanting to make her mark in the highest grade at school because she's under so much pressure to be accepted by her parents and her teachers and her peers. It's a story of God's love for the man in Union Road who all he's wanting to do is prove himself in society with the friends that he has, the money that he makes, the organizations he attends, and the house that he's built for his family. The world is that great ocean of perishing sinners who have taken their eyes off God, who look just like you and me. And yet he pities us. Oh, how he pities us. He doesn't love our sin. He hates it and longs to destroy it, and one day he will. And if we do not seek forgiveness for our sin and accept the one gift that he gives, then we too will be destroyed as sinners in our sin. Yet God takes no pleasure in that. He has been so patient with us for whatever number of years what we've lived. He's done absolutely everything he can to aid us in our rescue. Let me give you two biblical references to support this. Titus chapter 3 verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. It's because of his mercy. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some of us understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God looks upon us as helpless. He looks upon you and I and the sin of our past week, the sins that we'll commit in the week to come. He sees our lives. He sees into our minds. He hears our words. He knows the attitude of our hearts. He is full of mercy. He knows how dark and deluded and deceived we can all be and how distracted we are from him. And still he pities us. His heart continues to come out to us. He alone knows how hellish hell will be without him. He alone knows the depth of our sin, spoken in silent, open and private. 
And so he ransacks the storehouses of heaven. And he doesn't just simply send us a thing. He doesn't send us something to anesthetize us so that we can make our way through eternity in hell, not feeling just as uncomfortable as we might. No, he sends his son, his one and only son, to lift us from it eternally. Praise God, the Father has so loved the world that he has given. And he sees us in our sin and he sends us his son. And that's thirdly where we're going to finish. And finally today, it's going to be briefer today because I just simply want you to spend some time to look at what we get. Thirdly, look at what we get. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God sees us and he sends his son to us. That, that's what Christmas signals. That is what we're celebrating not something cozy and warm, but something eternity-shaping and hell-defying. Boys and girls and young people watching this today, everyone around church, you know, the story of Christmas isn't a nice story. Lots of difficult things happen around this story. It actually exposes the hearts and the attitudes of the people just like ours today. There's lots about this story around Christmas that's sad. Evil kings want to kill Jesus. Doors are shut tight in Jesus. People were saying unkind things about Mary and Jesus. You know, even the priests and the religious people who'd studied the Old Testament for years heard about this in Jerusalem whenever the wise men turned up, but not one of them goes to Bethlehem to find him and worship the king because they're more interested in their religion that's comfy than the Christ who's king. Folks, the story of Christmas isn't nice, but it's absolutely necessary. God the Father giving us his son, as Christ becomes an embryo, a little growing baby, cradled in the darkness of a teenager's womb. Who could measure? I mean, can you possibly measure the distance between the brightness of the throne room of the glory of heaven and the darkness and vulnerability of a virgin's womb? Exchanging the safety and adulation of heaven for a hay stall, loved and adored by all those creatures, those weird creatures we read about in the Bible, who worship Jesus day and night, the cherubim and seraphim who fall down before him, and yet between there and the manger. Hated by so many of those, he created on earth. And yet God sends his one and only son. I can say this on good authority because I am a one and only son. Some others in our congregation might be able to say that too, but I am my parents' one and only son. And it was about this time of year in 1999 as my father's life began to slip away that some of the last words he spoke to me were this. David, I love you. You're my one. You're my only son. And if that brings up emotion in our hearts today, do you not see the emotion of a love that's perfect 
here in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, as God the Father sees his Son in the world and says at his baptism, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And in Matthew 17, verse 5, where finally the disciples get a glimpse of just how glorious Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what is it God the Father wants them to know? He, he could have said anything. He could have said, you know, he's going to save you. He, he could have said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. No, he says, this is my son whom I love. That's the thing he wants the world to know. I love this boy I've sent. I love this man in your midst. He's my son from heaven whom I have sent. I love him. And how the father loves and is pleased with his son, this love is almost insurmountable, isn't it? It's utterly beyond compare. It's the only perfect love in the whole universe between the father and the son. And so here's the question. Could God, would God overcome his eternal affectionate bond with his son and deliver him to a world to be lied about, betrayed, nailed and butchered and crucified? Would he? Could he? Let me read it again in real domestic, at home, on your doorstep stuff. I'm going to paint a picture. Imagine you had an enemy. Maybe someone who'd even bullied you from your school days. Someone who tormented you for years, ignored you around town, gossiped about you behind your back, stolen from you, ganged up against you, was a constant thorn in your side. All of you will have someone who comes to mind who's a constant thorn in your side, who you just want to cross the street when you see them whose very existence haunts you and makes life difficult for you. And you hear they're in trouble, like real deep, deathly trouble. They've an illness, they've been diagnosed with an illness that is apparently incurable. And the only way to be saved from this sickness, the only solution to their problem, just so happened to be by making use of a very rare blood type connected with a certain DNA that it transpires only your son or your daughter happen to have, according to medical records. But it wouldn't just be a blood sample required. In order for this person to be saved, it required a donor, your son or daughter, to die in order to let that enemy live. All of you in your hearts at this moment are screaming, no way. Wise up. Let them go to hell. Sacrifice the son or daughter of my love for him, for her? You must be joking. But it reminds me of Mark chapter 12 and the parable of the tenants where the master rents out a beautifully well-kept protected vineyard to some farmers and come the harvest time sends a servant to collect the fruit but the first servant is seized and beaten and sent away empty-handed. It happens three times over until the father, the master, says, I have one left to send, a son whom I love. They will respect him. But when the farmers saw him, we read, they decided to take him, kill him, and threw him out of the vineyard. One son, sent by the owner, rejected by those who were merely working the land on his behalf. Sound familiar? For God so loved the world that he sent his one, 
His only Son. Friends in Union Road, friends in La Comfort watching today, let me say categorically that nothing greater has ever happened in this world. Whatever else is on your mind as you're watching this at home, over the last 10 minutes, if you've been distracted by something else or something else is tugging in your heart, whatever notifications popped up on your phone, whatever football match is coming up later, whatever deadline at work is looming this week, whatever COVID concern you might have, whatever Christmas presents you're dying to get in, whatever Santa's Wonderland experience you're wanting to take your kids to, whatever it is, it's rubbish. Utter rubbish compared to knowing this one truth this Christmas. Romans 8, 31 and 32 tell us that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul takes it for granted that God's greatest gift to us is his son. We do not treasure God's gift as we should. And what gift do we want this Christmas? A higher paid job, a new car, a more loving marriage. And young people at home today, imagine the shops are closed and the online retail services shut down tomorrow and you do not get the gift that you've longed for for months. It's been in your list for the last year. Imagine you didn't get it on Christmas Day. Does that mean Christmas isn't Christmas? No. When God does not give us what we want, how easy it is for us to feel unloved and complain. And I blame so many of us as parents because we hype Christmas so much. We're to blame because we've shifted the blame to the stuff and we've taken it off the Savior. The problem is never, ever a failure with God. It is only ever in us that we have devalued Christ. We have arranged our affections so that X or Y is more important than him. God did not spare his beloved son, but delivered him up for us all. There is nothing more, nothing greater, nothing more costly that our God could give. Of course he didn't delight in the pain. For at the cross it was horrible. Your sin and my sin was exposed for what it really was that day. An attack on God. An assault on his rule in our lives. It was a blatant and open attack. Just like we do every Christmas. We attack the beauty of Christ by replacing him with other things. We set Jesus aside in fear of the excitement over the latest iPhone or perfume or the desire for a relationship. We fill our kids' heads with fluff and nonsense and fairy tales and snowflake confusion of who matters most and what makes us merry. We set him aside in pursuit of a happy Christmas at the end of what has been a pretty rotten year, forgetting that if only, if only we took time to stop and appreciate the overwhelming gift of God, of his Son, our Christmas would be happy and full of the deepest joy and lasting contentment. The death that God himself came to die was no mere fluke or accident of history. The extent of humanity's sin was not only matched, but surpassed by the full extent of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And in that sacrifice, he showed us the very heart of his love, his own and that of his Father's. Romans 5, 8 tells us, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The magic of Christmas. 
It's not something out there you need to catch. It's not something out there that you need to buy or create or put up around your house, but it's already been offered to us and is the most costly present that has ever been given to you. The magic, the supernatural, the out-of-this-world gift that he came down to a virgin's womb and then was laid at the end of his life in a borrowed tomb. And he's there to rescue us. God is the giver. But why does he give? And what did we get? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that he ever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Folks, thank God. Thank God Christmas is over. Christmas is long gone. Christmas happened 2,000 years ago when the gift beyond all gifts has already been given. There's really nothing else that we need. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do praise and thank you that you are the giver. We thank you, Father, that the gift that you gave was your one and only Son, And we praise you for the extent to which you gave him. You did not just give him into this world for a time to let us see how wonderful you are, but you gave him into this world to be our sacrifice for sin. For we have failed to bring you glory in our lives as we were created to. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to bring the Father's glory and be the substitute for the many times we have failed to do that. Father, help us to quit chasing after snazzy Christmas gifts and with arms open wide, all of us wrap our arms around the gift that's already been given in Jesus and his hell-defying, heaven-opening, life-changing love. Father, Thank you for what you gave. Help us to take it for ourselves. In his name we pray.